I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Kirsten Hodge. Hi, Kirsten. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are both a volcanologist and uh, a museum director. Uh, not just any museum director, you are my museum director. You're my boss. Now, Kirsten, in this uh, series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific careers. Um, so would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? What are you? Well, I'm definitely a teacher. I am an ex-researcher, although I still think about scientific problems, but I don't do any active research right now. I'm not formally a student, but I'm always teaching myself new things and, and learning things as I teach them, I, I would say. <laughs> so I think I'll be a forever student. Yeah, you were sending me some courses just this morning. <laughs> now, I'm curious, what is your professional background? Uh, where did you go to school? Uh, what did you study? So I did my undergraduate degree at Vanderbilt University, where I studied geology and art history. And then I moved to Vancouver about 15 years ago to start my PhD in geophysics at the University of British Columbia. And I guess I've been in my current role. It'll actually be, I was thinking about this the other day, it'll be eight years in May from my, my you know, sort of work anniversary of being hired at the museum. And I've sort of changed roles since that time, but that's how long I've been in this current position, some form of it. Wonderful. Where is Vanderbilt? So Vanderbilt's in Nashville, Tennessee. It's right, you know, right in the city. It's a beautiful, small campus, very walkable. That sounds beautiful. Now, um, being a volcanologist, how does that contribute to your, your uh, work as a museum director? Well, yeah, so I guess... You know, being a volcanologist, that was what I did my PhD in. And then I have, you know, this background in geology or earth science, as well as art and design. And so in a lot of ways, working in the museum is sort of a the perfect combination of art and science. So I like to think of it as like this hybrid role where I'm still getting to think about science and scientific problems and how we communicate science, but I'm getting to put them into these beautiful, engaging exhibits to then, you know, attract people into science and attract students into science and and teach through those exhibits as well. So, I mean, I hate to call it my dream job. I don't know if I believe in dream jobs, but it's definitely a job where I'm often, I don't think of it as work because I enjoy it so much. Not all parts of it, but (laughs) many parts of it. Yeah, I have to say that you do put a lot of emphasis on making uh, things look uh, really good, which is surprisingly really important. Um, The more professional a a display looks, uh, the more people are going to enjoy it. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, people get, they're drawn into things that they're attracted to or, you know, that look nice. And so making beautiful spaces, I mean, that's just, that's like a hobby of mine, even outside of the museum. I mean, I've told you stories about how I like obsessively moved cases around in the museum to get the perfect angles and the light and everything. 
and you know thankfully I'm past that because I feel like we have a good setup in the museum but you know there were days and weeks and months where I would walk through and every time I'd walk through I would tweak one little thing (laughs) um and you know people may not notice it or know it but definitely coming into the space it can make you feel a different way depending on how the lighting is or what colors are used or how things are arranged and how, you know, the path that you take through the exhibits. So I definitely think about all of that when I'm, you know, building, building exhibits in the museum. Absolutely. And there are entire fields uh, dedicated to uh, studying how people interact with gallery spaces. Yeah, totally. How did you end up as director of the museum? How does a volcanologist um, start running a museum? Well, um, a little bit of, you know, maybe luck and just sort of being in the right place at the right time. So, you know, I got into volcanology after being, you know, doing an undergrad in geology and then came to UBC because, I mean, I wanted to continue at graduate school, came to do a geophysics program and, um, you know, just got interested in volcanoes and volcanology and was working in a fluid dynamics lab with um, a supervisor who was a volcanologist. And and so, yeah, so I sort of got into it out of just pure interest um, and, and liking the idea of, I mean, I got into geology because I like the idea of being able to understand, you know, earth processes from like a very fundamental level, like understand how the planet works. And I found that really fascinating but like I said, I, I always also had this artistic side and sort of design side in my mind and my, you know, when I thought about what I wanted to do with my career, I always flipped between, I mean, in fact, I don't even know if I've ever told you this, but when I was, when I finished my undergrad and I was applying to graduate schools, I had a a photography professor at the time who was like, you know, have you ever thought about doing a master's in architecture or just like doing something more design related because she's like you have this sort of interesting combination of science courses and art courses and that's sort of what's required to go to school to be an architect and so I remember very distinctly having this like turning point in my life where I thought oh my gosh should I you know abandon science and go in a totally different direction and I remember calling my mom who she's an interior designer and she's retired now my grandfather was an architect. So I have this whole, you know, art side of my family. And I remember calling her and I was like, what do you think? Like, should I, should I apply for going to school to be an architect? Like that's always been in the back of my mind. And she was like, no, don't do it. Like you're good at science. You know, you're not, you wouldn't make any money if you're going to work so hard as an architect, you're not going to make any money. (laughs) And then, you know, I remember reflecting on that conversation when I was in, in the middle of my PhD, you know, not making any money and working so harder than I ever had. And I thought, well, that's pretty much the same life that <laughs> she described. Um, but anyways, but yeah, and so I was, I was, you know, a, a PhD student, then I graduated and became a lecturer in the department or a sessional lecturer first. And I was teaching and I was just like in the right place at the right time when the the pa- the last person who ran the museum uh, left, it was just brought up to me as like, hey, would this be a role you're interested in? And at first I thought, absolutely not, because the museum had just been dismantled and taken apart for building renovations. So there was no museum to be had. It was just like boxes of stuff and 
um, an empty gallery. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be a lot of work. But then I sort of thought, this is actually kind of what I've always wanted to do. And so I, yeah, I applied for the job. I, you know, I actually think I, I first worked as a, in a temp position before they advertised like the actual permanent position. And then, yeah, I, I always sort of thought, okay, this will be my stepping stone into academia. You know, I'll do this for a few years, but the longer I was in the museum and sort of saw the creativity that I could, you know, have in my job and the sort of more artistic side, I just really fell in love with it. And I was still able to teach in the department, which is really what I love as well. So yeah, so that's how I got into this role. It was, it was, you know, sort of by luck. You essentially straddle two worlds now. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people in our department have these sort of interesting blends of positions. And I think that's what makes, you know, working in a university or working in a museum really fun is because you get to do a lot of jobs. Some of them you may not love as much as the other ones. But I mean, you know, as well as I do, is that in the museum, you can one day be changing light bulbs and like cleaning plexiglass. And the next day you can be, you know, finding weird fossils in the back room or gluing, you know, display labels on or, you know, any, any, like it, it varies so much that it keeps it very exciting. I would say I'm rarely, very rarely bored at, at my job. The great thing about having such a small team is that we get to do pretty much everything and anything. Well, yeah, we don't have a, yeah, there's no, um, there's not many filters to go through when we want to do something. It's just sort of up to us to find money <laughs> to do it. <laughs> And you're very good at that, I have to admit. Well, I try. <laughs> not, not always. Uh, speaking of the work that you do, um, is there any accomplishment that you're really proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think from, you know, sort of the museum perspective, I'll say that I'm, I'm, I am pretty proud of what I transformed the museum into. I mean, before I started, it was, you know, it was a totally different space. Like I said, it was, it was maybe you know, hadn't been updated in, I don't even know, probably over a decade. And so a lot of the displays were dusty and old and outdated. And yeah, I got to come in and totally redo literally everything. I mean, down to we like painted the bases of all the display cabinets and everything. You know, we sort of re, um, I don't know if I want to call it rebranded, but we sort of gave such a, um, a facelift to the museum space in that time. And then... We also redid all of the outreach programming as well. So that had sort of been that that was like initiated before I started. But of course, because I am who I am, I had to redo everything from scratch. <laughs> and so so, yeah, so I I mean, and the other thing that happened was I got hired in May and I think it was probably like June or July, like soon after. Oh, I know what happened. I got hired in May and then I went and taught a five week field school in Italy. So I was like, thanks for the new job. But can I also go do this other job that's outside of the university that has nothing to do with UBC or the museum? So I was on this sort of month and a half um, leave <laughs> and I came back and they were like, OK, so we're going to have a grand opening of the museum in December. I think it was like December 12th or something that year. This was 2013. And so I had less than six months to basically build a museum from nothing. And I won't even tell you the budget they gave me because it's hilarious to even think about. Like now that I know how much bigger science museums spend on exhibits and I'm like, <laughs> we basically did it for free. 
but it was fun. And it was like, everything was done in-house. You know, I, at first I wanted to buy a label printer and I had all these like grand schemes to make everything super efficient. And I was, you know, sort of told, well, this is the budget you have. So do what you will with it. And I was like, okay, well, we will buy some foam core board and we will use the undergraduate printer in the printing lab or in the computer lab, which for whatever reason had the nicest like print quality <laughs> out of any of the printers in the department. And yeah, we were, you know, cutting our labels by hand, like printing them, writing all the content, um, arranging, every, you know, hanging everything up, choosing specimens, like writing the storylines. And I had an amazing, I mean, I did not do this by myself, so I don't mean to speak as if I was alone. I had an amazing group of graduate students who helped with mostly with doing the interpretive content side. So like I would, I basically went to the various research labs and I was like, okay, you guys are the mineral experts. Like let's come up with three mineral displays. And so we would sort of brainstorm together and then they were responsible for writing a lot, do, doing a lot of the deep diving of like, what content do we want to put in here? And what do we want people to learn when they leave the exhibit? But anyways, it came together in this tornado whirlwind and was done in December. And I was like, this, that was crazy. <laughs> you know, it was so fun. But I think, yeah, that's probably, I mean, I hate to admit even how much I worked during that time. I was pretty much in the museum every weekend. I was often there until like eight or 9 PM most nights. This was like long before I had children. So it was easy to, to stay late and have no one to rely on me <laughs> to be home. But it was a, yeah, it was a really fun time. Yeah, it's amazing how in some cases uh, little has changed. We still do our labels by hand. and But I mean, you've also really uh, completely turned the museum around. I've seen photographs of what it looked like before before Kirsten. I guess that'd be BK. Um, and after Kirsten, AK. Well, and I, I mean, I can't take full credit because we did have an interior design team that took out the weird carpet and put in like polished concrete floors and they covered the ceiling with like nice wood beams and put in directional track lighting. Like, so we had some upgrades cause before it was the fluorescent lights that are in the rest of the building. So that like that part sort of came with it and they did some like accent colors on the walls, but yeah, all the content inside was, was yeah, was us was the early, I'll call it like the early museum team. I was in a group presentation uh, just the other day and someone mentioned that they remembered when the museum was just a foyer display and now uh, they feel like it's a full-fledged museum. So uh, that's all thanks to you. I mean, yeah, I remember because I was a grad student in the department and I remember walking through the museum and, you know, thinking like, this is kind of a cute little space, but also feeling like it just felt really, really outdated. And that was partially just due, the, due to the like interior design of the the lobby back I mean people called it the lobby because they didn't even call it the museum sometimes but yeah it's been a fun I, I came in at like the best time I think and that was part of what made me jump on the opportunity when it was when it was open it sounds uh, kind of silly to focus so much on making things look good but it really is important uh, it changes how people perceive it now Kirsten we've uh, covered your past successes but I know you're not sitting on your laurels um what are you researching or, or working on right now? So yeah, so right now, so yeah, I'm not doing any uh, volcanology research anymore. Um, but, you know, in the museum, I'm thinking about things like more sort of in on the science education realm. So how people, like meaning the public, how people learn and understand complex scientific issues. So for example risks associated with natural disasters or realities of climate change. 
And then also from sort of the other perspective is how do we, meaning the scientists in our department, how do we engage with public audiences in meaningful ways? And <clears throat> whether or not that's doing public lectures or visiting classroom, like having scientists visit classrooms or having more informal discussions or like open house style tours. And then also one of the things that I think a lot about, especially in my museum work, is how scientists tell their stories in a way that's really approachable and engaging, but also that sort of makes it meaningful to public audiences so that we can sort of bring them in and say, like, here's why you should care about this. And I'm really passionate about scientific communication in general. And, and you know, a lot of my work in the museum is is I want to be able to really sort of increase the scientific literacy in our community. And in my opinion, that starts with the conversations and the information that's presented at science museums like the PME. Absolutely. And especially right now, we're learning the extreme importance of public science literacy. Yeah, exactly. Now, Kirsten, one thing I've heard from many of our interviews is that uh, the craziest stuff happens when they get into the field. Um, I know you have done some field work as a volcanologist, so I'm wondering if you have any uh, crazy field stories as a volcanologist or if you have any crazy uh, stories from the museum, because personally, I know that crazy stuff happens in museums all the time. I feel like a lot of my crazy museum stories are like top secret that you you know about some of them, but maybe we shouldn't say it to the public. So I'll I'll yeah, maybe I'll I'll think more about the the early days of my uh volcanology research. And I mean, yeah, I have lots of crazy field stories. One that came to mind when I was thinking about this question was, I mean, everyone has stories about bears. I've been very lucky to have uh, maybe like no well maybe if I had one bear encounter but um, like meaning that I was like faced with a bear on a trail sort of situation but this one story that I always think about especially when I'm camping was <clears throat> I was doing work in Yosemite National Park in the northern part of the park which is called Tuolumne Meadows and we were there I think we were there for almost a month so we were basically living in the, one of the campsites there and it was early August so it was like you know very popular tourist season the campsites are very crowded and so you're not really alone in those campsites I mean you're 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 in a tent and there's like your your neighbor is just like on the other side of your picnic table sort of situation they pack everyone in because everyone wants to spend their summer and uh, in the park anyhow and I and at these campsites, they have these metal boxes where you're meant to store all of your food and pretty much anything that has a scent to it. Like they say, even store like toiletries, chapstick, anything that might attract a bear, you have locked up in that that metal box. And I just remember one morning being woken up by, it literally sounded like someone had come into our campsite and was just banging pots together. And it was, you know, 5.30 in the morning, which in the summer, it's like already starting to get light out. And I was like, what is going on? Like, who is out in our campsite banging pots and pans? Like, this is awful. And everyone's, you know, so close. And so you're, you're like, maybe someone's getting up to cook already. And I didn't get up at that point because I, you know, was trying to get a bit more sleep before we started the day. And then when we got up, we found that a lot of our cooking stuff had been like strewn around the campsite. And basically 
someone hadn't closed the latch to our box very well. And so a bear had gotten into it and had been in our campsite, which is, you know, a, li- a little bit scary. And then we found out in, you know, we were all chatting over breakfast that one of my colleagues who was there with me for a short time, who was sharing a tent with me, she was saying that she had forgotten a pepperoni stick or like a salami stick or something in her field pants that she had had out in the field with her that were in the tent with us. <laughs> so we literally had like a salty, like very fragrant meat in the tent. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank goodness that bear did not decide that he was going to come over to our tent and check that out. Um. So yeah, I mean, that's, that was of course, just like a, nothing traumatic happened. Um, but yeah, other field stories, I, my first time learning to drive a manual transmission car was, I think it was my first year. So I, I think I was saying earlier, I taught this field school, this geology field school in Sardinia, Italy for a few summers in a row. And the first time I was hired as an instructor, like part of your job is to uh, instruct the course. And then you're also a van driver to drive the students from the different field sites. And we're, we have these nine passenger giant vans. And I was basically given the keys to the van, like the first week of field school. And I was like, Oh, I don't know how to drive stick. And they're like, Oh, it's fine. Like we'll take you to, you know, to the parking lot and teach you. So I was given like a three minute lesson in the airport parking lot. And then my van was loaded up with students who were like, you know, fresh graduates or about to graduate from undergrad. And here I was like, you guys trust me, right? Like, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. And driving in Italy, you know, is for the most part fine until you have to drive through a tiny old town where the streets weren't designed to for cars to go through them, really. But those which, you know, to most North American standards would be like a one lane road, but it's actually a two lane road plus a sidewalk. And anyways, lots of very stressful um, Sardinia driving stories of like, scraping walls or yeah, like scraping the side of the van walls like breaking windows by like hitting like decorative blocks that stuck out from churches like trying to turn a corner or something so yeah lots of I mean I could fill a whole podcast with stories about <laughs> in the field in Sardinia but yeah but I'll leave it at that just fun learning how to drive literally in the moment with like a whole van and and not just like a car but like an actual like a three bench, like there's like the front bench and then there was like three benches behind. So it's like basically a mini bus. Yeah, one of those, the creepy white vans, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, more or less, it had windows. I think driving the van would be scarier from even driving the stick. Yeah, I think it was like the two together made it like you just had to do it. I was like, well, and and the one thing about driving a, a big van is that you're then, like most people sort of yield to you because you're the bigger vehicle. But I got really good really quick. So that was a happy ending story. Now, I'm curious. Um, volcanology is kind of a, a relatively obs- obscure science. Um, why is it important? And why should we bother practicing it? Well, yeah, so volcanology is, I mean, it's important to study. I mean, the main reason is that people live near volcanoes. And so we want to keep those people and their towns and you know their infrastructure in their cities safe and so we want to be able to make predictions about how volcanoes are going to behave in an eruption during an eruption um so looking at you know 
where different types of volcanic deposits have been in the past can tell us things about where they might go in the future, understanding what types of gases are coming out of a volcano. I mean, all sorts of things and sort of combining that with, um, you know, information about the weather and, and, and the atmospheric conditions um, is important. I mean, it's also important for um, flight paths. The, the 2010 Icelandic volcano that erupted, I think it was in December 2010, and it totally disrupted air traffic in Europe for weeks. Oh yeah, which volcano was that again? I'm not even going to pronounce it, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> which is shocking because I've heard so many people either like try to pronounce it or actually pronounce it. You'd think I would have learned it by now, but I don't have to say it in my everyday life. So, but anyways, but yeah, in terms of volcanology. So yeah, it's important for, um, you know, where people live, um, where people are flying, but, but, you know, a lot of it is like a, a very curiosity driven science. And so it's, it's really just to better understand, you know, what's going on inside the earth. Cause that's volcanoes are sort of our window into what's below the ground. And then I'm going to ask the, the flip question uh, with your museum hat on. Why are museums important? Why are science museums important? So science museums are important because, in my opinion, the work that happens in them, and especially in our museum because we're located within an academic department in a, within a university setting, is that we're really the bridge between the sort of academic community, the scientists, and the public. And it's sort of a space where people can learn science in an informal way. Because, I mean, and I'm sure you would agree with me, science centers are pretty non-intimidating learning spaces, right? They're like self, they're usually sort of self-guided and they're usually fun to be in. And, you know, when people are in the museum, I want them to, to I don't want to say like accidentally learn, but I want them to to be able to understand why science, and in our case, why earth science is cool and interesting. And, and really when people have left the museum, I want them to at least have had like one epiphany or one moment in the, in the space of like, wow, I had no idea. That's, that's really interesting. And I think for me, that's, you know, that's one of my goals in like designing an exhibit. But, you know, with that, I'll also say that our work in the museum is, is really important to inspire this next generation of scientists who are hopefully going to become scientists. And, and I think, you know, no matter what kids think a scientist is, like maybe they don't picture themselves as a scientist growing up. They maybe haven't had role models that are scientists or they just can't see themselves in anyone who they know is a scientist, maybe due to lack of, you know, gender, racial or ethnic diversity. But, you know, I always try to stress that there's many, many ways to become a scientist and to be a scientist. And ultimately, you know, most of us have come from different backgrounds and paths to get to this spot in a you know science center or, or science department. And so there's really no one size fits all path. Like it can take a lot of different turns and yeah, I always say that our job is to lure people into science. Yeah, so the, the less creepy version of that <laughs> is what I said. <laughs> I'm like slowly changing Daniel's vocabulary. <laughs> now, Kirsten, um, 
what would you say is the best um, part of your job or the part that, you know, really gets you up in the morning? Well, the part that is my favorite, which I, I mean, we're not doing now because we're all working from home, but <clears throat> my, my, yeah, my favorite part of my job is designing and then building new exhibits because to me it really conv- combines all of the favorite parts of my job, which is thinking about the content that should be included, coming up with a storyline, you know, doing the research to to write that story, and then also plan how we're going to present that content. And that includes like how the exhibit will look. So what objects are we going to put in? What images will we use? What specimens do we put in the exhibit case? And, and then also sort of what's the overall look and feel of the exhibit going to be? And then also, you know, thinking about how people will take in this knowledge that you're putting on display. And I'll say, you know, in the last, I mean, because I did most of the, or pretty much all of the exhibits with maybe the, a few in the museum are about seven and a half years old, seven years old. And I'll say, you know, since that time, I've learned so much more about science communication and informal learning spaces from working with various museum colleagues at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum, and then also some other people, you know, content writers and developers that we've been working with on for various projects that I'm, yeah, as soon as we're back, I'm excited to make some upgrades and some changes, which I think I've been putting into the back of your head over the last few times we've spoken. And uh, what would be your favorite exhibition? I think my favorite, well, it, it's it's sort of a toss up between... I really like the mineral rainbow. I think that one's quite simple. It doesn't have a lot of science content in it. It's just a beautiful display. And then, but my favorite exhibit that I created was I think the evolution of earth exhibit, which is in the earth sciences building, mostly because that it really tried to pull in a lot of different parts of earth science and and so it's like a multi, a pretty multi-layered exhibit. And also it was fun to order um, three foot diameter beach balls and have them cu- custom printed with <laughs> what Earth looked like, you know, 3.2 billion years ago. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know that uh, the evolution of Earth display is um, seven rotating, as you said, beach balls <laughs> in the atrium of uh, one of our satellite buildings. And... Um, one of the stages of Earth is uh, the snowball Earth, when the planet was covered almost completely with glaciers. Um, I believe that model gave you some trouble, didn't it? Well, yeah. So I think it was, oh gosh, I mean, it, it was probably a few months after we put that exhibit up. Oh, and the other thing is the globes rotate. So we have them all on little tiny motors so that you can see all the different sides of the Earth at, at various time points in its history. And... I remember walking in the to the atrium. I don't even know if people told me about it or if I just saw it on my own, but the snowball earth had gotten a hole in it. And so it looked like a shriveled, I was called it a, like a yogurt covered raisin that <laughs> had shriveled up and it was just sadly hanging there spinning. And so we had to go in and take it down. And I just filled them up with a, I'd brought in an air, air mattress pump, like a manual pump. So I was in there like in the middle of the day and there's like tons of students coming back and forth to class through the atrium. And I was in there with my foot pump, like pumping it up to find the hole. So we then had to do the whole, like put a little bit of soapy water on it and figure out where it's bubbling. 
And then I, luckily the beach balls came with patch kits, so we patched it up. And so far we've had no holes since then. Now I've got an inverse question. Um, what's the most challenging part of your job? The most challenging part, <laughs> this is a hard one. I mean, I think really the most challenging part is not having enough resources to do all the fun projects that we dream up in the museum you know, because we're, we're funded through the, our department's operating budget. And, and then any sort of special projects that we want to do, we really get external grants to support those. And so, of course, yeah, money, not having enough money. And then also, I would just say not having enough time anymore. I, I now have two young kids who are five and almost two. And so I just I just don't have the same amount of time to dedicate to my museum projects as I did, you know, prior to five years ago. Because in the like I said in the beginning of this p position when I was starting, and there was obviously a lot more to do back then because we were really you know ramping up things, we were building stuff, but I could easily stay at work until eight or nine p.m. and it was fine, and you know I didn't need to rush home to pick do daycare pickup or cook dinner for anyone. And, and I could come in on the weekend one day a week and, you know, it's totally fine. And I, you know, I, I, I don't mean to sound like I was overworked. I really just loved it. And that was sort of when I was productive, I am now very much locked into the nine to five work schedule, which is literally the opposite of when I feel the most energized and productive. I remember before I had kids, I would always get this time. It was like around four, four thirty PM to maybe like seven or seven thirty, so it wasn't a huge chunk of time, but it was this time where people were leaving the department, classes were done. Usually, my office mate had left because he had children or he had a kid, and so everything got really quiet and still, and I could really think and get stuff done. And then I could, you know, go home. I could get on my bike and ride home, and be home for eight and make dinner and and just sort of be on my own schedule. Now, of course, you know. I got to leave work or be, you know, out of here at 4.30 or 5 to go get my kids. And that sort of like 4 to 7.30 time is um, dinner, bath, bedtime, you know, read books, get everybody in bed. <laughs> and so I'm not complaining. Like, I, I love that now. But I definitely, yeah, the time issue for me is is quite challenging because, as you know, I mean, especially now in our current work situation of all being remote, like, you're on Zoom all the time, all day, and it just leaves very little time for creative work. And so, yeah, I'm, I am looking forward to a time when I could maybe work a little bit later or, you know, take a day on the weekend and, and get stuff done. But, but yeah, but for now, that's my life and I totally am enjoying it. So don't mean to paint a negative picture of that. No, I, I, I can totally uh, empathize because when we were working in person, I loved working a little later than normal. Um, like you said, no one's around. You can just get so much done. It's so rewarding when there's so much low hanging fruit um, that you can do an easy project and it makes, makes the world of difference. Yeah, and I yeah, I didn't even think about like, you know, at 5 p.m. the museum's closed and so things get locked, like the doors get locked. You can really, you could take a whole exhibit apart and it, you know, it'd be fine to sort of work on it there. And we have. And, exactly. <laughs> Um, speaking of things being challenging, I'm curious if you belong to any uh, underrepresented communities and uh, if you feel like that's 
impacted your career in, in any way? So, yes. Um, I mean, I know that people can't see me on the podcast, but I am <laughs> I am a cisgender, cisgendered white woman. And I mean, I I guess I I will say that I've experienced my own gender based inequalities throughout my career, but I also recognize the place of privilege that I'm in. And and so I think overall, I would say that I've had like I would say being a woman has impacted my career not very much or not in a negative way. I think partially because I've had such amazing role models during my undergraduate degree and I had really supportive mentors through grad school and even in my sort of early career in the museum, the faculty in our department has always been super supportive. And so, so yeah, so I would say like overall, I don't think being a woman has impacted my studies or my career in a negative way, <clears throat> but I know that's not the case for everyone. So I think that I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. So I'm curious, um, do you feel like uh, the museum community is very welcoming or do you feel it's a little more insular? Well, I think, I mean, just I'll, I'll speak generally about the field of earth science because I don't, I, I mean, that, that's who I work with primarily. I don't work, um, so I'm not sort of entrenched with the larger museum community as much. And, and I would say that earth sciences as a field is for the most part welcoming. And that's how I felt <clears throat> when I came into it at Vanderbilt University. But at the same time, I know that we have a long ways to go in terms of welcoming many underrepresented communities into the field. I mean, right now there's a, quite a bit of data that shows that earth science is the least diverse field in STEM. And, and at the same time, I would say that a lot of scientists and a lot of my colleagues would agree that you know, better science is done when more perspectives are included and when a more diverse range of people are engaged in the scientific process. And so really, like, if we want to make earth science more welcoming and make it a field that people who have a diverse range of backgrounds want to join or want to be part of, we really have to make sort of this, you know, systematic structural changes in, for example, in speaking of our department specifically in the activities that we do within our classrooms and seminars, how we hire and how we market ourselves. And so right now there's a small group of us in our department who are actually involved right now with writing some new policies that have the goal of making our department more inclusive and equitable and diverse. And, you know, because ultimately I think what, what we all want is for the ideas and the demographics in our department to be more reflective of the general population. That's a really elo eloquent way of, of putting it. Uh, now, I am curious, uh, you mentioned that your workflow has been uh, impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, would you care to elaborate a little bit? Have you been able to do work from home or or what's going on? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I am lucky that I can do my job remotely. There's obviously a lot of parts that can't be done remotely, but we've sort of switched gears in what we're doing in the museum, where we're moving out of the physical three-dimensional realm and into the two-dimensional virtual realm of developing virtual exhibits and virtual programs. 
And while I am very much looking forward to being back in the museum and seeing people in 3D, which like I think is going to be a really weird experience, to be totally honest with you. I mean, you and I have seen each other a few times, so it feels not so weird. But yeah, some people I haven't seen because I was on maternity leave before the pandemic started. And so I went from one year of leave to right into the pandemic working from home. So my my life changed in that I was home with my kids, but I also had to work full time at home. <laughs> and I live in a tiny two bedroom place with two kids under five. And so I can only describe it as a once in a lifetime adventure. <laughs> One you'd care to repeat? You know, I would. I mean, it's been crazy, but I feel like in some weird, you know, twisted glasses half full view of it, like I've got to spend more time with my kids than I would have if, I mean, right now they're in daycare, so I'm working from home alone, but there was a really big chunk in the beginning of the pandemic where daycare was closed and my husband and I were both working full time and we were having to do it with our kids who aren't old enough to just be sent off to play or do something on their own. I mean, especially the youngest who was at that point just a year. And so, yeah, so I would say in the beginning, it was very challenging but again, I was spending all this extra time with my kids that I wouldn't have had if they were going to daycare from nine to five and I was going into the office. So again, that's my own personality of trying to always look at the bright side of things. <laughs> but that's that was my lemonade, you know, with the pandemic lemons. That's something I really appreciate about working with you is you do always manage to put a, a positive spin on on most things. Oh, good. Because I feel like sometimes I'm I'm the wet blanket to your fun ideas. <laughs> I'm like, you want to do that? Like, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> Who's going to do it? <laughs> uh, sometimes some of my fun ideas need some some wet blanketing. <laughs> now, um, you did mention that you enjoy teaching and mentoring the future generations. Uh, so I'm curious, what background or courses or experiences would you recommend for uh, young people listening to this who are looking at you as a role model and want to follow in your footsteps? So... Yeah, I mean, I have I have lots of advice here. <laughs> I mean, I think so someone who wants to study, you know, earth science or even earth science outreach, if, you know, if you're if you're sort of at this it depends on what stage in the your studies you're in, but say you're sort of in your undergrad wanting to make the jump into graduate school, I would say choose a subfield like so for example when I say subfield I mean volcanology or glaciology or atmospheric sciences choose it in something that you just find really 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 fascinating that you literally want to spend all of your time thinking about I mean if you love skiing and you obsess over avalanche forecasts like maybe go into snow science or atmospheric science I mean it's that sort of um you know you want to be able to say you're if you're if you really want to say you're doing what you love and like feel really invested in your work that's sort of my first piece of advice but then i would also say like if you have a bad experience with a particular course or a particular subject like don't necessarily write that off because sometimes you can just have a bad instructor and like i have a lot of um colleagues and i've had undergrad students who say that they don't like math which, you know, as someone who does like math, I'm like, well, you just haven't had a good math teacher. <laughs> but 
maybe not always the case, but, um, but yeah, so I would say, you know, don't necessarily write things off after one bad experience, if it's something that you feel like you might enjoy. But then I also would say, and, and this is sort of more recommendation for like the undergrad level, is I would say, take a few art courses, take a few writing courses, because it's really important in science to not only be a really good communicator, both written, it's good to be a, good at public speaking as well. So putting yourself in situations where you're having to speak in front of um, audiences is, is definitely a good skill to, to learn. But also being able to, you know, create clear visuals, it can really set you apart in the scientific community as an academic. Like you were saying before, diversity is so important, not just in the, um, in terms of diversity of researchers, but also diversity within ourselves and a diverse uh, skill set. Yeah, totally. Speaking of uh, having a diverse skill set, you um, you took a bunch of courses in school. What would you consider to be the most important course or, or set of courses that you took that got you to where you are today? So I'm going to talk about a set of courses because there's definitely not just one course that I felt was the most most important. So in when I was a graduate student, I took a course, which I don't even actually remember the name of the course, but it was <clears throat> it's more of the style of the course that I found was really helpful. It was a it was called a you know seminar style course, which basically there'd be one student who it was a small course. So I think there was like maybe 12 of us or less. I can't remember. It was a, we'd all sit around a table. Basically, that's how small it was. And each week, one student would be in charge of leading the course. And so, for example, if it was my week to lead the course, I would have two presentations that week. And so the first one would be giving a general overview of the topic. And then for the next class, I would present a more detailed study that fell within that topic from a particular research paper that I chose. And then there'd be another group of students in the class that would be assigned for leading a question and answer part. And so it was just a really sort of um, student-led course. And, you know, it was a lot of work. Like it was literally the most work I've ever done for a course, but I learned so much that term beyond just like the content knowledge that I gained, but it was also, you know, really becoming familiar with my own knowledge gaps, like where I thought I understood something, but really when you try to explain it to someone else, you realize, I don't understand this at all. And so you'd have to go back and sort of relook at it and, and try to like connect the dots in your head again. And also, you know, it helped me develop a really deep understanding for certain topics because like I said, I was, I was responsible for leading that section of the class. So like in some ways I was tasked with teaching my colleagues about whatever the topic was. And so I always tell students, and I say this even to my students that I teach now is that the best way to learn something is to teach it to someone else. So I'm like, call your grandma or, you know, get your roommate or even, I mean, you could literally talk to your dog <laughs> and explain, you know, if there's a concept they're having trouble with, try to explain it to them. And you will, at you know, as you're saying it, you will sort of understand where, I mean, it's better maybe to do it with a person because then they can ask you questions, but you will, you will become familiar with the holes in your knowledge that way. And then the other sort of, again, most important course or type of course, I would say courses that gave me time in the field. So like working, doing like actual projects outside, research projects outside and or in a lab. So I would say getting experience uh, working with a research group 
whether whether you're just going as a field assistant, like out to help a graduate student, or working in a lab, you know, get tasked with your own experiments to run. Because I feel like this type of learning can really bring all the parts of your knowledge. It's sort of, they call them like capstone courses because they're meant to pull all the different pieces together and let you apply it in one space doing, you know, real work. And to me, this can really, I mean, it can do two things. It can give you those skills of like how to ask research questions, how to like set up experiments, all that. But it can also solidify if the the fact that you maybe don't like that type of work. So not everyone is cut out to be a field scientist or field geologist because maybe you just hate being outside and not showering for two or three weeks or you know what I mean? And and that's fine to not want to be that type of scientist or maybe you do not like working in a lab um, because you'd rather be outside all the time. So I think it's good to sort of explore those options and and just be honest with yourself of what you really enjoy because like I said before, there's like so many ways to be a scientist and you don't have to do, you know, one of those extremes of like indoor work or outdoor work only. I was going to say that sounds uh, very similar to the first course that you mentioned where um, you're practicing basically being a prof. And I feel like so many people go into grad school or um, or pursue a PhD with the goal of becoming a prof. Um, and then at the end, they realize they don't actually like teaching. Um or dealing with students. So it's great that you got to try that out first. Yeah, and I mean, even as an undergrad, I was I was able to work as a teaching assistant for certain courses during my third, I guess it was during my fourth year in a course that I'd already taken in my second year. And so that actually gave me some early teaching experience before I started in grad school. So any, yeah, any sort of like, teaching experience you can get, like you said, to let you know, because not all academics enjoy teaching. Some of them just prefer research and some academics much prefer teaching to research. So yeah, many ways to to be in this field. Okay, but my two other like highly recommended courses that I took as an undergrad, and I would say anyone going into science should consider taking these no matter, again, what type of science or what you think you are good at or, you know, is I think everyone should take a drawing course, just like intro to studio art drawing 101. And I think everyone should take a physics course. (laughs) No one can, no one can see Daniel's face, but he looks like he just vomited on his keyboard. Physics. Why? (laughs) Okay. Let me, let me explain. Let me explain. So to me, like, and, and again, this is like my experience, like I took both of these courses and, and to me, they really helped, they really shaped a lot of the ways I, that I, you know, practice science later. So drawing courses, it, it like the very fundamental level, they just teach you how to connect what you're observing into like how your brain's processing it and then how you can extrapolate it onto a piece of paper. Like how, how best can you uh, represent what you see And then it also teaches you how to give attention to really tiny details and something that you're observing, which as a scientist, a lot of work is just making really, really good detailed observations. So that taught me, so the drawing course taught me how to look at the world sort of through a very objective lens. And I'm not a great, I wouldn't say like I'm a great artist or draw, like I can't draw things very well, but I can, I mean, I'm good enough, I guess, but, but I feel like 
before that course, I, I broke down, you know, images differently than I do now. It just made me like sort of change perspective on how I look, I make observations. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> okay. And, and again, this is another, like, I had a really amazing physics instructor during my undergrad. So I think it can, maybe that was a part of it, but, but really I think, you know, physics and, and just an intro to physics course, that's all. I think it just, it really can give you a deeper understanding of how and why the world works from a mathematical perspective. So it can put all those math classes that you didn't enjoy into a real world perspective. And this is looking at stuff from the subatomic to cosmic scale. So looking at, you know, everything, it can also teach you how to solve problems in a really systematic way, which I think is important. And, and honestly, having a strong grasp of physics can, or I should say will, deepen your understanding of pretty much any scientific field. So no, no matter what science you go into, I would say having a physics, um, you know, having knowledge of physics is very helpful. And even if you're not going to be a scientist, so even if, you know, we go beyond geology or chemistry or biology, physics can help you understand how a musical instrument works. So if you play the violin, it can teach you about how si sound waves work in your in your instrument. It can teach you about the science of light, which if you're studying visual art, you know, such as painting or photography or film, that is very important. So I think, again, science or non-science, these are two courses that I would say every undergrad should take. Have I sold you, Daniel, on this? <laughs> you haven't wholly, wholly won me over yet, but... I'm on the way. <laughs> you know how I keep recommending courses for you? I feel like maybe when we're back in the fall, I'll like sign you up for a physics 101 course. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to skip on to the next question now <laughs> before I get in more trouble. <laughs> you, uh, you've talked extensively about your academic past. Um, I'm curious. Did anyone inspire you while you were studying or while you were doing this work? Yeah, I mean, I would say I've been inspired by a lot of people through my career. I've, again, I've totally lucked out with really great mentors and with with some exceptions that probably I've blocked out of my brain, really great instructors. So I, you know, Vanderbilt, I was really lucky. Most of the instructors were super nice and, you know, flexible and fun and very engaging and also at UBC during my graduate program as well. And, and among these people, I would say that a lot of them were strong female role models, which, you know, sort of helped me see myself in this type of career because I could see myself in them. And then I also had great role models in my family. So my mom had, a, I think I mentioned this before, she had a very successful career as an interior designer and my sister is a, a biologist at the University of Georgia, but she also has this whole side art, you know, business that she runs as well. I, she's put it on hold for now, but she did for a while. So yeah, so I just, I've always sort of had inspiring people within close realm of, you know, my, my work. And so it's, yeah, it's sort of kept me going along the way. Good. I was worried you, were, you weren't going to mention your mother because I've heard you talk about her a few times. And I know that sometimes uh, the most uh, inspiring people uh, or the people who are right in front of us can be um, overlooked. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, she was definitely, she was, you know, she was there through all of it. 
um, all the science fair projects and, you know, she helped me with all of it going through school and yeah. So, I mean, and she's, you know, she's been to the museum and it's been fun to show her around and get her opinion on things. I mean, even in the beginning, I would like send her photos of exhibits and say, what do you, you know, would you do this or would you put it like this? And I always, I'm sending stuff to my sister as well for feedback, which usually ends up in either one of them will give me like the opposite opinion of what I've decided on. So then I have to rethink, you know, everything and, <laughs> and change what I was going to do. As family does very often. Now, Looking to the longer term, um, I'm curious, what would you like to be your legacy at the end of your career? Or uh, what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, assuming that I retire from the museum role, because, you know, right now I'm not near the end of my career, which, you know, it still feels far off. But I would say I would say I want my legacy to be that I've left a very strong and well-functioning museum that has these fun, beautiful, engaging exhibits. And, and that really, you know, we've created this informal learning space, which everybody feels welcome and everybody leaves the space feeling really inspired to treat earth differently after they come into the museum. I would also say that I'd want to leave a really solid infrastructure for our scientific programming for our K through 12 students so that we can keep recruiting a variety of new and diverse scientists in all the years to come. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but I would say I'd want my contribution in sort of the, you know, science content side of the museum to be that I've increased the general public scientific literacy by some measurable amount. So you know, when people come into the museum and then when they leave, I want them to have not only understood, but also appreciated science more than before they they visited. And, and this is sort of what I've always loved about informal learning spaces like museums is that people kind of accidentally learn something when they come in. They maybe just come in thinking, I'm going to look at these beautiful rocks or minerals but, you know, you end up wandering around and you read a few things in the exhibits and interacting with them. And by the end, you probably have one or two new pieces of knowledge that you didn't have before you came in. That's wonderful. And then here's here's like my big this is like more of a dream, but I'm hoping that I can like leave this, you know, when I when I retire is that I hope at some point and, and I'm like hopeful that this will happen before I, I retire. But I would say to have our museum grow from being a department museum into its own science center, like earth science center that's run by a group of, you know, super dedicated and talented staff, more similar to the other outreach hubs on our campus, like the gardens, like the BD biodiversity museum. So my dream is to have that before I retire, but if not, I, I hope to like set up the space to, you know, catapult into that um that type of science center well as i was saying before i've heard people talk about what the museum used to be before you came along and what it is or what they see it being today and it's like night and day so i feel like uh you've certainly made um the first important steps in that direction and i can only see things getting better from there yeah we just need a new building and <laughs> more collection space <laughs> i mean you know all the all the real hurdles here I'm sure I don't know all of them. <laughs> now, um, I'm curious, uh, 
where do you see the field going in the future? And you can answer this either for uh, museology or volcanology. Do you have any recommendations for students who are entering this field so that they can anticipate these changes and prepare for them? Um, I know that you know the field that I went into when I started my career um, is very different from the field that I'm in right now. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll I'll just speak sort of generally about earth science because I think I would say this advice would apply to many disciplines in earth science, such as volcanology. But I would say there's a pretty strong trend now towards using data science techniques to study earth and planetary processes, as well as uh, studying environmental issues. I was reading an article recently where they call the field, I think it was something like earth analytics, or, you know, they're, they're saying it's this new field which combines knowledge of earth science with data science skills to understand these environmental processes, to address, you know, technological hurdles in collecting and analyzing these big data sets. And, you know, these type, the cool thing is these type of data can now be combined with things like demographic data or social behavioral data as a way to understand, for example, how humans interact with or impact the environment. And, you know, what comes out of these types of studies that combine these two fields are, you know, really better informed recommendations for addressing, for example, environmental issues like climate change or understanding new and innovative tools that really are necessary to move certain industries forward. And, you know, so for students, I would say, if you're going into earth science, definitely take some quantitative courses. And I think, you know, sort of the, the courses themselves are moving towards this. So, you know, adding more statistics, more math, um, maybe even taking a computer science course or like a specific data science course will be beneficial um, as you progress through the earth sciences. That's really interesting because we often think of um, computer courses as being like the future and uh, geology courses as being very um, uh, basic and, and like Luddite-ish. Uh, you're looking at rocks. And so it's really cool. I've heard this a few times um, that merging those two is really important. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, just, I mean, not even talking about our science, but like we live in a data driven world, like everything we do right now is tied to data, uh, everything on social media, like when we grocery shop, even when we use Google Maps, when we drive, I mean, everything's being collected and used for something. All of our actions are being captured as, as data. And so I think, yeah, that's sort of where, um, where things are going in, in not only your science, but in, in a lot of other fields. It makes me wish that I had taken more quantitative courses during my undergrad. And the natural world is just so complicated that you really do need these uh, high powered machines to understand it. It's not a simple feat. Yeah, for sure. Well, Kirsten, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Uh, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? No, this was really great to chat with you, Daniel. And it was fun to, yeah, to talk about more, you know, more detail about my museum stuff. I know we talked a lot about volcanology in our last interview. So this was, this was a fun uh, conversation to have. Absolutely. I enjoyed it too. <laughs> uh, thanks for making time to sit down with me today and have a great afternoon. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, 
please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca/learn/podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.